Tell you that as a result of your many, many letters, Neil Levang made a recording of Ghost Riders in the Sky. It has just been released, so we're going to ask Neil to play his recording arrangement. Fifty-seven p.m. on the East Coast. I'm usually home. I got three minutes left to eat everything I can. Not tonight. It's the weekend. It's a Saturday night, as the Misfits are telling you right now. A beautiful Saturday night hymn. And what are we going to be doing tonight? Whoa. Well, I've got a nice citrus mint hookah packed here. And uh, whereas life, this, uh, this studio, this building is teeming with life... It is me and my cousin Sherry here in the studio having a good time so far. Sherry, how you feeling? I'm feeling great. Hello. We, uh, hello. Hello to every all the Franklies. Yes. 
Yes. Love the Franklies. I know. We're back. We're back in New York and having a good time. It's our first weekend back in New York. And tonight is a really wonderful uh, event because I've been waiting to interview Sherry, this man, for a long time. I've listened to so many of his interviews. Um, uh, chief among them is his time that he spent on Art Bell's show. Uh, yeah. more, most recently, Midnight in the Desert. But um, it's Andrew Bashago, and we have, uh, boy, we're about to be taken for a journey. I'd never heard of him, and I listened to that thing today. Wow. Yeah. I, just a lot, lot of thoughts. I said, take crazy. a listen to this. It's crazy. Listen to this, Sherry. Get, get acquainted. Get some, <laughs> get some questions in your mind. Where are we going? I mean, he blew Art Bell's mind, so... <laughs> well, hey, hey, here we go. It's late night talk radio over here as well. We are listening on different uh, devices. It's not necessarily over the airwaves, but one day that would be a that'd be a great thing to do this over the airwaves. But tonight it's just you at home, we over here, and Andrew Bashago is going to be on the the show with us in about 15 minutes. We're going to give him a call. He's on Pacific Coast time, so uh, th it's even more convenient for him since it's not too late, and we can take him uh, for as long as he will stay with us, and he has a lot to say, and he is... If you want to know, once again, Andrew Bashago, an American lawyer, writer, I spoke with him earlier on today, so we, 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 we really got this, this bio down. Ran for president. Right? Ran for president in 2016. Wish writer. I knew that. I know. Oh, I know. Who, who did know? There was 2016 <laughs> was a little bit nuts. Uh, writer, public speaker, media personality, presidential candidate, best known for serving as the U.S. chrononaut. Chrononaut. Wow. In Project Pegasus. We're going to start off what the hell is Project Pegasus? We're going to get into that. He's going to bring us through the whole thing, the whole thing, because his father was a major part of that. And he was a, only a child when he started traveling through time, chronovising on behalf of the U.S. government. And, uh, and then he was there with Project uh, Pegasus during the advent of time travel, at least on a United States government level. I, I have so many questions about the real advent and what what the what the hell is going on there but also project mars yeah i had questions about that too that's the advent of interdimensional travel do you remember when disney had a ride about mars and it basically it was a centrifuge and everybody got sick on it no yeah is it yeah. almost like starship 3000 at Playland where you just stand and get No, no, this was like it mimicked what it would be like to travel to Mars and I didn't want to do the centrifuge, but everybody that came out of it, I did the easy route, which was basically sitting there watching a movie in a tiny claustrophobic room. But the, um, yeah, they had to close it down because everybody got sick. Oh, well, I, well, hey, maybe we can ask him about that. Yeah. Hey, well, it's all going to come up, and I wonder how sick he got. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot to say here, a lot to do. Uh, also, for what it's worth, uh, Abe is going, Abe... Sinclair is in the background and around here, and he he's going to be along for the ride as well. I don't know if he uh, pops in or hey Abe, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. Abe. I'm not going to interrupt things and just well, you know. Well, he's not going to hear you from Discord, but for now you can you can. What are you most uh, excited about tonight? Uh, I think this is as far down the rabbit hole as uh, probably top three of all time. Quite frankly, guests. And I'm just excited because I've listened to 
Bashiago now going on ten years plus. Oh, by the way, it's Bashago. Bashago. I, I have been I've been adding a little bit more of an Italian twist to it mm-hmm. for a like long time. Cheese. Yes, but he's it, this is a Polish. Eastern European uh, name, he, and he, he corrected me on that. I said, well, I have a little bit of a, an Italian bias over here. I'm sorry, <laughs> Andrew. But I also yeah. would like to give a very big shout-out and a thank you to Aaron Moriarty, who is the uh, the host of Truth Quest. He helped me book Andrew. He's he's good friends with Andrew. He, he affectionately calls him Andy. And uh, he gets a very well-deserved production credit for this broadcast engagement on this Saturday night in September. So... Man, we got physical time travel. We've got chronovising, re- remote viewing. Uh, of course, there is the uh, little the, Barry Sotero connection. A little Barry Sotero connection. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to He's get to in that. a Gettysburg picture. Right. This is the the famous An- Andrew Bashago picture of him uh, in Gettysburg. That's him when he was. Uh, he looks out of place. A little out of place. Of Big course, old shoes. A, fu- a fuzzy face. Yeah. So it just occurred to me, one thing you can ask is the connection to uh, Stranger Things. And if he uh, knew or saw anything about that and how that associates with the Montauk. That was supposed to, supposedly based off the whole Montauk, Montauk Monster, Philadelphia Experiment. Yes. Which was the premise to his Project Pegasus. I, want, I wanted to ask about that because that's why I'm saying the advent. When we talk about advent of time travel, teleportation, dimension hopping. I think of Montauk. Then again, that's that's more so 70s, 80s, whatnot, and that's a continuation of uh, of of um, Philadelphia, which everybody said that's during World War II, which was running parallel supposedly to the Manhattan Project. So, what is the what is the the divider? What is that divider line? And where does one start? Where does one begin? But we're going to get it all tonight because he is full of information. He has told told this story many times before, and it's so full of detail, and it never wavers. Nothing ever changes. It's incredible. So it's incredible he's still ar- around and not a major target. See, that's another question that always must be asked. Mm. It will always must be asked. Uh-oh. So <laughs> that's what we'll get into. Um, let me read a little bit to you. This is from a New Earth Media article about Project Pegasus, time travel and teleportation that actually refu- refu- uh, references Bashago. According to several reports and eyewitness accounts, the United States government achieved time travel and teleportation back in the late 1960s. Events of what took place throughout the late 60s, throughout the 1980s, in a program called Project Pegasus seem quite astonishing. Most people reading the information I am posting here simply will not believe it to be truth. When you look back, you would think that this technology was not even possible during that time period, but we are forgetting a very key aspect of what supposedly took place back then. According to many reliable sources, humanity was in the midst of exchanging technologies with an advanced species. Now, I want to know, are we talking interdimensional species, races, during this time? I don't know. It'll be great to get that answered as well. So it is conceivably possible to develop these technologies from a race of ETs, thousands if not millions of years ahead of us in evolution. My question is always, what do we have to offer? What do we have to barter with a civilization that is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ahead of us? Why would they even see us as worthy trading partners? So 
that's that's all uh, the always human spirit i think that's what it's all about our creativity we just have such great great <laughs> you know great broadway we have good visual arts who can do without that actually a lot of great bands that too but you um you guys remember riley martin who would go on the the stern show they talk about his interactions with the viabians no. you're uh, abe you know riley martin right I don't think I'm as familiar. No, you, you might refresh me. You don't remember Riley Martin? <laughs> he, well, I don't think so. anyway, he would talk. Uh, he would talk about his experiences up on Alien Craft and being being shown the ropes of how the universe really is and all that. And and uh, he would always rely or, or come back around to how we were admired greatly for our ability to compose music and to create beautiful works of art and and how expressive we are of course we have a lot of vices and pitfalls and all that too so uh, anyway it's going to create a wonderful tapestry of conversation tonight that's what we have lots of vatican talk gotta talk about the vatican as well yeah i want to know if he's seen the picture of jesus the one that the, that one, right? the one the that chrono- the chronovisor, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's another a reason why I say, when you when you say advent of one technology or another, then where does the f- long fabled Vatican chronovisor come into the mix? What kind of events has yeah. did he as a child have any sort of autonomy in requesting something he'd like to see, or was it always just very mission based? The butterfly well, effect. Well, it sounds like they gave the kids some vacations and some, you know, some th- extra things for doing the job. Can't go to school today. I'm going to uh, prehistoric time. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go Barack see some got dinosaurs. got to be the president. Oh, that's right. Barack got to be the president. For everybody that doesn't know, winner. we're going to get around to that, too. Uh, a- Andrew Bashago has been very forthright for years about how um, one of his jump room partners was was Barack Obama. That Barack Obama as a was a child, right? He was a as a child. I believe was it was roommate. as a child. Yeah. Uh, roommate. Yeah. That's a big, you know. So there's a there's a lot to unpack here. Um uh, hopefully we can get a good amount of information out and discussed and and uh and and floating about before midnight because that is my hard stop here. I, and then I would really, I would love to have him back on for another one of these Saturday night schmoozes because. Well, so, I hope he can tell us how it kind of ties into t- today, like because that must have been a long time ago, right? That interview. Yeah. How many years? Maybe twenty. Oh, which which one? The uh, Art Bell one. That was 2013 or 15. Oh, okay. okay. 13 or. Uh, I, I hadn't heard of what he's done since the presidential thing so i would love to kind of get a little catch up and see how because he was he was pretty intent and that was his main focus when i lost track of him was the presidential run and then i got lost in the everything that happened since then and kind of haven't been caught up so it's going to be a riveting night yeah Yeah. i agree and uh, just as far as everybody else out there goes i understand you're going to be teaming with questions and you're, uh, many of you are going to be rigidly skeptical, and that's fine too. You have to. You, you, you're going to be hearing things tonight that are <laughs> that are uh, you may never heard before, and you just might not be able to swallow the whole pill. So whatever. Just have some fun. Yeah, Let's have, have some fun. Yes, Saturday exactly. Night. And send in. You can send in uh, questions either through 
the super chats hopefully i can get through them get a few of those in but uh it's going to be a, a little bit harder to do that but anything that comes in that it does not get answered tonight i am going to start a little bit of a repository on all these questions so that we can uh, we can be armed with new follow-ups the next time that he comes on which i hope i hope happens but one night at a time one night at a time and we're gonna give him a call in about five minutes so other than that i know that we got a pretty brand new snazzy looking pilled.net which is filtering down to quite frankly tv I hope everybody's enjoying themselves over there. People are having a good time on on uh, Twitch, Foxhole, Rumble, YouTube, Rockfin. Theta is giving us a little bit of problems tonight. I could not, I still cannot connect to Theta. So everybody on Theta needs to find a secondary place to watch. And hopefully that all gets cleared up by Monday. But How many people watch from Theta? Honestly, I think the, the most I've seen there is 13. So it, uh, that's Look, what all 13 of you head on over to quitefrankly.tv. We have a brand new formatted chat and uh, outlook on the whole deal. So like, come in there and let's look at the chat. It's looking really smooth and awesome. And by the way, I'm going to be looking at the chats tonight if there's any pressing questions that uh, looks like need to be asked. So I'll be uh, assisting and representing uh, the Franklies. If there's some good questions in the chat room, then shine some light on you guys as well. That's great. That's great. So we, we have... Uh, You're so good, Abe. No, Abe, Abe is always on top of it. <laughs> you are. No. No. <laughs> Come on, you guys. <laughs> oh, us. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, what was the other thing I was going to say? I was going to say something else when it... Comes... Sherry ruined it. Sorry. I don't know where we were going with all that. that. I was doing updates on... We got into the... Theta. Oh, Theta. I, usually, I call Theta the, the jacuzzi. Uh, it's pretty much the jacuzzi of the quite frankly mm, sad mm. you know broadcast experiences because it is yeah you know, I, I think that's where Jerry Coogan hangs out Nikki definitely hangs out there though she's in multiple chat rooms at once and um, a few other people Nighthawk and I know I know the the regulars over there anyway Coogan in the jacuzzi that's it we have the jacuzzi on theta we've got the um, of course, you know Twitch. They are a culture unto themselves. They they are very very proud over there on Twitch. D Live is is the scrum. D <laughs> uh, D Live are the the nipple obsessed people. They're obsessed with nipples, but they are they are definitely a force of their own. YouTube it is just that uh, that rock where everybody comes in comes and goes and crack rock crack rock <laughs> and then uh, and then Rockfin. Rockfin is another one. It's a little bit more. It's a giant pool. It's a it's a public pool, not necessarily a jacuzzi. There's more people in there that a jacuzzi could hold. Plenty of chlorine. Yes. I've been wanting to hang out where the lone wolves go. Where's that? Where the lone... That data? You know, I have been encouraging people to make their own internet chat rooms. To make their own like private room, I don't care where the hell it is. You know the show is easy to access live, no matter where the hell it is. But take your faves, take all of your all of your favorite people, your inner circles, and start your own chats. That that would be awesome too to hear from certain, you know, new chat rooms I don't even know exist, or you know, a frankly chat from some obscure IRC website. Who the hell knows? <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. So. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, get creative. All right, it's 1014. 
That means we're calling up Andrew Bashago, and we're going to start this one off. And uh, I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't say buckle up. I'd say unbuckle. And <laughs> d- let's just get knocked around a little bit. This is going to be great. Let's do it. And we're calling them now. Hello, Mr. Bashago. Welcome to the show. Um. Hi, Frank. Good to be on the show. Oh, it's wonderful to have you on. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. I think I've told you a number of times we've been all waiting for this a long time. And uh, another thank you to Aaron Moriarty uh, for making this happen. He's he's a, a real uh, kind, kind friend of the show. So uh, if you're feeling well, I'd love to just jump right in. I am, so fire away. Okay, so first thing. For an audience that is comprised of many people who have never heard of you and your story and your work before, let's just start from the beginning. Could you please begin by describing, in your own words and your own experience, what, how Project Pegasus came to be and how you became such an integral part in its experiments? Well, it really had its origins in the now very famous overflight of our nation's capital in July of 1952. Uh, my late father, Raymond Bashago, was then working at Oak Knight in Paramus, New Jersey, and a bird colonel showed up at his desk in October of 1952 and ordered him to report to the Curtis Wright Aeronautical Company facility in Woodridge, New Jersey, the next Monday. There he designed the metal alloy by which the ram jet would be built to chase the ET craft away from our planet. Now, they knew from that event forward, not necessarily the Roswell incident of July of 1947, but that July 1952 overflight, that the ET craft were not only traveling at incredible speeds that we could not match, I think the nine of them were clocked at something like 7,000 miles per hour at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia where the CIA was located, still is. And they also realized that they were teleporting around the sky. They were just blinking off and then immediately appearing somewhere else, or at least seemingly immediately or instantaneously. So during the 50s and 60s, uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, that my dad was affiliated with, really with all other U.S. intel and military uh, departments and agencies, was working on the, the teleportation activities of Nikola Tesla that he left evidence of upon his death in New York City on January 7th, 1943. So for example, after working on the ramjet from 1952 to 55 at Curtis Wright, my dad was hired by the Thomas A. Edison Research Labs that had been founded by Neil T. Williams at West Orange, New Jersey. And essentially what my dad did during those eight years was solve a lot of high-end math problems for different microcircuitry that became sort of caught up in what would ultimately become the computer age. A lot of those devices were bought up by Robert Noyce and became Intel Corporation. But a major thing my dad was doing at the Edison Labs, as it was called, which were not the original Thomas A. Edison Labs, they were actually one door away from Edison's original laboratory there in West Orange was repeat Nikola Tesla's teleportation experiments. And then 
during the 50s or 60s when they set up one of those devices that was labeled energetic array in Nikola Tesla's paperworks that he left upon his death in 1943. Um, they turned the device on and a field of radiant energy began cascading down these two elliptical shaped booms or armatures and a technician walked through that field of energy to pick up a screwdriver across the shop floor. But he tumbled to Africa. It took him about six weeks or six months to get home. His supervisor thought he had been disintegrated. So when that technician at Curtis Wright showed up, he told his, his supervisor what happened and they rose, my God, Tesla left a teleporter um, upon his death. So in early 1968, when I was six and a half years old, my dad had, had me go up with him to Curtis Wright. We went to building 68. There on the shop floor was this elliptical shaped set of booms. They were about, each boom was like shaped like sort of like a, a battleship gray elephant tusk. They were about eight feet high and about 10 feet across on the floor. And when you stood back by about, let's say 10 feet, it sort of looked like a cascading water in kind of a public water sculpture. But when you went up to about a foot, it looked like raster on early television screens mm. in a black and white snow pattern with these little squiggles of bluish green light going back and forth across that field at like three inch intervals. And my dad explained that he would hold my hand and on the count of three, we would leap through that field of energy. So we practiced a couple of times and then he had one of the technicians turn on the device. And when we jumped through that field of energy, precisely what he said was gonna happen, happened. We found ourselves in what's come to be understood as a vortal tunnel through time space. It looked basically like an oblate triangular tunnel of bluish white light. And just as my father had predicted, we would, in several seconds, find ourselves on a hillside somewhere else in the country. And But before then, a couple seconds before then, what he predicted would happen, or might happen, did happen. He was sort of pulled through the wall of the Vortal Tunnel. And I thought, my God, my dad has disappeared. But then we both arrived on the hillside he had predicted somewhere else in the country. And then I later found out it was the state capitol grounds in Santa Fe, New Mexico a distance of 2,005 miles from Wood Ridge, New Jersey, which we reached in about five seconds. And uh, he then got a, a, a state automobile, New Mexico State vehicle, and we drove over to the Los Alamos National Labs and we met with Dr. Harold M. Agnew when he was the director of the W Division at LANL, the Los Alamos National Labs. Um, Agnew was probably the quintessential Project Manhattan physicist. He had been a part of all critical stages of the, you know, the testing, the design, and the uh, ultimate test explosion of the atomic bomb. And he was then the head of the W division, the weapons division. And it was there ensconced in the military industrial complex, as President Eisenhower called it, that time travel was sort of initiated because the first thing they were working on 
was Tesla teleportation. He had labeled it an, an energetic array, but they began calling it a Tesla energetic array, or Tesseract, which Madeline Engel was encouraged to pick up in her book, A Wrinkle in Time, as a form of what my dad described as what they were calling disinformation. So that was one of the first devices that we did. And my dad basically um, took me to that meeting with Dr. Agnew. And when he asked in regard to me, how old? You know, my dad said, Harold asked my dad, how was your trip, Ray? And he said, fine and fast. And Dr. Agnew looked up and said, oh, did you take the teleporter? And my dad said, yep. And so did my number three son, uh, Andrew. And he looked over at me. And Dr. Agnew looked over at me as I was sitting there next to my dad and said, in regard to me, how old? And my dad and I both said six. So that's an important uh, data point because that establishes that the, the man who was then the director of the W division at LANL, who would become the director of the Los Alamos National Labs from roughly 1970 to I think 78, was asking my father about the had he taken the teleporter my, when my dad said you know that we had and dr agnew um asked me you know asked my dad and i how old and we said six my dad let out some 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 rope and then said have you taken it yet harold and agnew said no but i want to now look if the man who then became the director of our biggest bomb lab in the united states of america had not yet tried teleportation it had to be a new application in applied quantum physics in the atomic research community, which is what that sort of area of our government was known as. And at the same time, we know that our teleportation to Santa Fe had to have been done between September of 1967 and September of 1968, because I was born in September of 1961. So that, that memory allows us to kind of contextualize the advent of teleportation secretly by the US government. And then when they began to manipulate when we would arrive at our destination in the past or future, teleportation-based time travel. And then they began to involve me in other forms of time travel. Well, uh, okay. Eight modalities in, in, in total. Eight modalities. Now, before we get into that, um, we're talking about teleportation. The first question I have is how did they start how was location? You said that the first guy to cross Tesla's lab or, or, or cross the lab while Tesla's technology was being tinkered with to pick up a screwdriver somewhere ended up in Africa, and he wasn't heard from for weeks and or months. Right. And then, So how, how did it become that if you are in New Jersey, you knew, they knew for a fact you were going to show up in a specific location in New Mexico. Is this something that is just technologically needs to be, uh, needs to be done from one Stargate to the other, or well, are you was, riding through? Yeah, Frank, it, it, was, it was an emergent disruptive technology that when they set up the Tesla device, all they knew is it said energetic array. They had no idea what it did. And in fact, the first Americans to Tesla teleport were a group of Navy enlisted personnel who asphyxiated because the Vortal tunnel they set up was too long. Then they began working with foreign children that they would bring to our country and use in Defense Department experiments. I was in the third group. So by the time I started jumping through that, 
near you know the beginning of 1968, they had worked out all the all the kinks in teleportation. So my answer is that they were finding out how to set both the both the size of the Vortal Tunnel and hence the destination and calculate can somebody get through it with enough of the oxygen they push into that Vortal Tunnel just with their body. But, but then they found out, well, wait a minute, if we manipulate this part of this device, oh my God, we can have somebody arrive in what we call the past or the future. Because a number of things that Project Pegasus proved is the so-called time-space continuum. Everything occurs when it occurs to us because our, our perception is focused on that time and place, what I call you know, a time-place in time-space. But it's all there. The past, present, and future exist all the time simultaneously. We just perceive it from our, our time-place, our, our, our position in time-space. And that was true of many of these devices. They were working out, well, just how does this work? What, what are we actually dealing with here? And it was an emergent uh, set of technologies. Now, they had kind of made it safe, but it was still new, dangerous, and experimental when, when we children were involved. Um, and I was not the only American child. There was like 140. So there were 139 others my age, born roughly between... Um, 1958 and 62. I was like the second youngest born in September 61. I was told by one of the physicists at LANL. Um, so they were working with us and they were making it safe, but then they wanted to use children to find out, well, let's say if we have the family of the president teleport with the president, the vice president, whatever, let's have these um, you know, these first families of America, let's find out what it will do to children if we if they teleport. So they had a number of goals in using kids in the program. Um, when you talk about, when you talk about the advent of time technology, whether it just be teleportation or, as we'll get into, moving into the past, moving into the future, or just observing uh, one or the other, how how do we how do we work out the what we have all anybody who's been interested in this kind of stuff has learned over the years about say the the uh, the Philadelphia experiment which predates the 1960s but we all heard was teleportation based and 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 whatnot so why why do you assert that the advent was in the 60s what do we should what should we know about about Philadelphia that, um... Well, the, yeah, yeah, that, that's always, a, I think, a critical question. I'm talking about the, the Tesla Energetic Array that was set up in Building uh, 68 at Curtis Wright, Aeronautical Company facility in Wood Ridge. Something that later got captioned under the evolving sort of mythification of the Philadelphia experiment happened, but it happened a number of months after Tesla died, like in August of 43 it did not involve the Eldridge it involved the USS Martha's Vineyard it was not in uh, the Philadelphia Naval Yard but in Long Island Sound it did not involve radar invisibility of the Eldridge as was told in numerous books articles and even a feature film it involved Tesla teleportation of the Martha's Vineyard and at the helm of that vessel during that experiment into Tesla teleportation um, were not Einstein 
or John von Neumann or Tesla and others who have been linked to the so-called Philadelphia experiment. But the real Philadelphia experiment, which took place in Long Island Sound, um, involved J. Robert Oppenheimer and Edward Teller at the helm. So after the war, and by the way, it, because it wasn't Tesla teleportation, there was a massive discharge of electrostatic energy. That was even a danger when I was teleporting in the in the shop unit of the Tesla teleporter. I couldn't even bring standard American coins in my pocket. And one time when one of my classmates did, it literally started getting agitated and tore a rip in his pants. And almost, my dad said if that had hit either of us, it would have killed us. So that did happen. There wasn't a massive discharge of electrostatic energy with the Martha's Vineyard. But there wasn't a group of sailors fused into the ship. There was one sailor who, when the ship was brought back, not from Norfolk, Virginia, but from Newport News, Virginia, was impaled on the column of the splash cowling in front of the captain's helm inside of the Martha's Vineyard. But because there were so many naval witnesses and because that experiment in Long Island Sound linked Tesla teleportation and the very Los Alamos physicists who had built and you know had designed and, and built and achieved the atomic bomb and they wanted to keep the emerging teleportation and time travel secret, the Office of Naval Intelligence scripted the Philadelphia experiment that has come down to us. So I'm not saying this was the first um, experiment in teleportation, even by Tesla. Apparently Tesla may have even been involved in the Kearsarge uh, experiment in the late 30s. I'm just saying that the unit that I was exposed to was that shop floor model at, at Curtis Wright. Okay, uh, so then as as we're we'll just move along to different the different types of um, abilities of this technology because right again we're talking about teleportation. Um, uh, you you must know obviously the the long fabled rumors of the chronovisor hidden at the Vatican. Uh, that's something that I've read was was actually being worked on from the '60s until the '90s by a a Father Ernetti. Um, so. I, I, a, what do you know about the chronovisor from the Vatican? Because I know the Vatican is huge with all all these types of experimentations. And then maybe get into the difference between teleportation, chronovising, being able to, and not yeah. actually being able to physically go someplace. And then we'll go to the actual jumping from past to future to present and, and the nature of time itself. But first, chronovising. What can you tell us about that? Frank, I love this question, and I love how, how on top of the facts, the, the critical facts you are. And I love, as somebody who grew up in an Italian neighborhood in New Jersey, to share this with an Italian-American. Um, there was a Vatican prov prov province, or uh, provenance, rather, of chronovision, il, il chronovisor, as they say in Italian. The um, Father Pellegrino Ornetti, and Father Augustino Gemelli were working at the Catholic University of Milan in Italy in the 1940s. And they were trying to understand why Gregorian chants, as played by Vatican prelates who were musicologists or singers, musicians, had certain properties, like certain spiritual 
reassurance, certain healing properties, and so forth. And they designed a specialized microphone to split the signals. And they changed the microphone and something that made a little technical change to it. And something that Father Augustino Gemelli, also known as Pierre Maria Gemelli, I guess that was his priestly name, uh, but he'd been born Augustino Gemelli. Something that Father Gemelli's father said to him in childhood when his nickname for his young uh, Italian son was uh, Zucchini. And they looked at each other and said, my God, we have a window to the past. So they got with Enrico Fermi, the most prominent Italian physicist, who later would go on to work on the atomic bomb at the University of Chicago with a graduate student in physics, a prized pupil named, guess what, Harold M. Agnew. And there in the 40s and early 50s, uh, Ernetti, Gemelli, and Fermi developed a flat-screened television-like chronovisor. Now, I know that the Vatican province told by individuals like Father Francois Brunet is true because when I was at the chronovisor array that I was using initially to get to the past, but later the future, on Project Pegasus, 1970, 71, 72, I was at the chronovisor array in Morristown in the Performing Arts Center there. You might want to go over there to New Jersey and take a look at that. Mm. And uh, it's still there. And it was sort of a building from the 1870s that they were reconditioning. But that's where the chronovisor was, uh, was on the stage of that Performing Arts Center in Morristown. And one of the technicians said to me, Andy, that, that, that Catholic priest in the back of the room, that's Father Ernetti, one of the inventors of the chronovisor. I just wanted you to know that that was happening because there he is, and uh, here you are. So I, 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 what I wanted to share with you, and I think it's neat that I'm sharing it with an Italian-American, is that um, the, that story is true, and I, I can bear eyewitness testimony to its truth. The idea of a project looking glass developing the chronovisor is not true. My dad even said to me when I was a teenager, when we were talking about the program, and I was no longer in Project Pegasus. You know, son, with a lot of these uh, devices, the Vatican gave it to our government, like our Navy, and I know they did with the chronovisor, and then they passed it on to Bell Labs. So what apparently happened at Bell Labs was um, that they turned the chronovisor from a flat-screen television screen in which Ernetti and Gemelli were claiming they had, for example, images of the crucifixion of Jesus and some ancient Roman poem that they had the full lyrics of into a cubicle a hologram of light. And when that light was brought down around us on the stage of the chronovisor, we went to that initially, that, that past event. But I was in the first group of U.S. chrononauts who on November 5th of 1971 went forward in time via chronovisor. So the Vatican provenance of the chronovisor is the truth about that particular time travel device. Okay, this is uh, this pretty incredible stuff here. And uh, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, d can you please explain the functionality of the chronovisor from a, you are in New Jersey, you are from there, gazing into the past and 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 then we'll talk about the actual 
taking a person physically and bringing them to a place. But I would love to, I would love to know a little bit more about the gazing into the past or future. For example, I, I know about when whenever somebody learns about the legends of the Vatican chronovisor, they are going to invariably learn about how they went, uh, how the Vatican went, or, or many went and um, observed the crucifixion. How does one focus this on a location like Golgotha or something uh, to that effect? How, how are you able to focus in on a, a time and a place and be able to view it from your remote location? Then we can talk about actual being there. Well, I, I, I came into that technical development in 1970. Um, my dad even described how they were using an eight-sided bismuth crystal and putting an EM signal through that, and that was causing that cube of light to pop out on the stage. So between the 40s, when they developed essentially two-dimensional chronovision, to the time I was in when third and fourth dimensional chronovision were being perfected and even they were experimenting with how kids would respond to being chronovised, they had found a way to focus on a particular time place, a particular point, if you will, in time space. How they did it, I don't know, because I wasn't one of the technicians on the project. I wasn't an engineer, a physicist, a mathematician. I was a, a chrononaut. I was a time-space explorer. And um, one of America's earliest, certainly in childhood. And But I do know that when they created the, when they propagated a past event, let's say uh, the assassination of Lincoln, which they sent me to, if I was standing outside that hologram, I saw it, and they even used the phrase, a looking glass. See, kids, this is a looking glass into past events. In fact, the first chronovisor image we were shown was a beautiful Tudor castle in England in like the year 1500 with this stablemate in a, a, a gray brocaded shirt, like half shirt and gray tights and gray curled up boots leading a gray mayor diagonally across the grounds of this beautiful Tudor mansion in England. And we were just amazed. We were looking in at a looking glass of some location in England around 1500. But what they then showed us was Jack Pruitt, who would later become the research director of Project Montauk, explained to us that if we were sitting on the stage beyond the blue line on the floor and the hologram was propagated, we would spontaneously go to that location so when they used that hologram on people, when they focused it around living human beings, both adult and children, they found that that person would subjectively go to that time place, that location, if you will, in time space. But because when they used an adult, the breathing, the footfall, a cough, a sneeze, a comment, a laugh, whatever, would cause the hologram who go on the fritz, like an early television screen, they decided to use children. So in that sense, we were necessities in going in to the, initially to the past via il chronovisor, the chronovisor. In the case of, um, uh, you know, we weren't, so we were necessities. We were also experimenties because they wanted to test the effect on children as they did with all these devices. Um, we were also viewees in the sense that they knew that children had more keen and accurate perceptions when they were time traveling. And, and we were 
saneys, as I call it, because we weren't going crazy when we would move back and forth from different points in time space. So how they identified the point, I don't know, but I think it's kind of moot because whatever point in time space they propagated, again, in this sort of mini holographic universe inside that hologram on the stage of the device, whoever was in it when that was propagated went to that past location. Now, if we were there for any of us, adult or children, but particularly children after they had to use us as necessities um, in the program, um, if we were in for 15 minutes, the, the hologram would just collapse and we were back on the stage of the device back in Morristown or the one over in Curtis Wright in Woodridge or whatever. There was also a chronovisor array there that we were using. But if we were in, in, in the hologram for more than 15 minutes, a density effect would occur and we were stuck in that place in time space and they had to insert kind of a, a soccer goal-like portal that we were trained to run to. And when we did, we found ourselves in this dark tunnel in thicker and thicker sand. And we were taught how and shown how it was the back of like a dinosaur tunnel, like an amusement park ride, if you will, at, we believe it was Bertram's Island in, in New Jersey. And from there, would we, we would be bused back to usually Morristown. So they were able to not only isolate a point in time space with the chronovisor, um, you know, and be able to call up, for example, I saw a film of scenes of Jesus of Nazareth's ministry and crucifixion, and my dad spoke of the scenes that his team had gathered of Jesus's resurrection. So they were getting scenes that we would look on as looking glasses when we weren't in the hologram, but when they chose to focus the hologram around us, we subjectively went to that lo past location in in in, in time and in when space. You, and when you say you're you're in there in this hologram because when somebody thinks of hologram they think of uh you know there's a uh, there's an Elvis Presley show at Radio City Music Hall and they're going to project yeah. a 3D image on the stage you are not you're not talking at this point now when you're when you're subjectively bounced into this this scene, you're not talking about a scene from, say, A Christmas Carol where Ebenezer Scrooge is observing Fezziwig's Christmas party with no interaction. You're just observe. You are you, you're able to talk and interact with people and things there. Yes, and in fact, all of these scientific truths were shared with us in uh, learning chapters. You know, learning le lesson plans, if you will, in a speed learning program developed by. A CIV, Servicio Intelligentsia Vaticano, it was on the screen. And they were um, science, the history of science and the history of society from the time of Galileo Galilei, 1450. So I picked up all this scientific knowledge. But when I say hologram, you know, in answer to your question, Frank, I'm remembering that we went to a museum in like, I think it was in Newark. And before we even were chronovised, we saw images of like standard holograms of like Frank Sinatra singing, and Muhammad Ali boxing, and I don't know, maybe it was George Washington laying the, you know, the cornerstone of the Capitol or something in uh, 1793. I don't remember what the third was. You know, it might have been, I don't know, Babe Ruth hitting a, a baseball. Um, and so they were just showing us what a hologram was in the conventional sense. And then they explained to us 
that what we're doing in the chronovisor is creating essentially another hologram, but it's not just a hologram image, it's a recapitulation of a location in the quantum hologram, the hologram in which we find ourselves. You know, it's being propagated by a, a device, we're calling it the matrix. They shared that with me when they were spinning, our, spinning us to induce out-of-body experiences. And I got to this black um, wall-like area that I couldn't get past. And the woman who interviewed me after that, that time-space probe said, yes, Andy, other people are reporting that. Um, we think it's the, the, the infrastructure propagating the hologram in which we find ourselves. We're calling it the matrix. Now, that was after Tesla teleport, no, after... Uh, um, remote viewing, the second form of time travel I did was just spinning to induce out-of-body experiences. And I've taken accounts from people who've had accidental spinnings where they've had non-local events happen in their lives, like going back 30 years and so forth. So we knew what a hologram was because they had taken us to that museum in New Jersey to look at standard holograms. But no, they were using hologram in terms of an emission of moving light recapitulating initially a past and then future events so that if we were in that hologram we went there because because of the time-space continuum when you propagate an area of that time-space continuum in a new location they found that what's going on there in the total quantum hologram is recapitulated at the local level and so we were going there and it was dangerous I mean a couple times I got stuck in the past one time in like the Five Points neighborhood of New York City that was featured in that, I think it was a Steven Spielberg movie, like The Gangs of New York. And I was among a bunch of young toughs, about 10 or 12 street urchins living with one Irish lady in this filthy tenement. And I was terrified because I didn't think I was gonna get home. Another time, I was driven home from my elementary school after arriving back via teleportation at Curtis Wright, and I went to my front door, and some strange lady answered the door and said she lived there, not my my beloved mother. So I was actually in another dimension. So Project Pegasus was doing very advanced time travel probes, and I was caught up in that as a young child. I received specialized training just to deal with the deracinating effects of time travel. Okay, so he here's where a few things come up for me. Now, I got to ask you about the kinds of, obviously, first, you're just trying to, they're just trying to see how this thing works and the effect that it's having on on people who are actually doing all this uh, this traveling. But uh, but you, you bring up a the, the the concept of or the the situation of being stuck. Now, astronauts, as we are, we learn as so young that if something really goes wrong, badly you're not getting back home from whatever mission you're on that astronauts are given right. some kind of cyanide capsule uh so they can just kill themselves and not have to go through one way or if they're stuck um and then you know here you are how do they prepare not only just people but children for being stuck in a t potentially forever stuck in a time that is that could be hundreds of years disconnected from where you were born with not only yeah. no not, well, not only no one you know, but possibly depending on what your mission is, no one around you even speaking a modern language. What was all the protocols for something like that? 
Well, sometimes they would dress us in appropriate period clothing. But basically, you know, I was involved in these eight modalities, remote viewing, uh, spinning to induce out-of-body experiences, and then the Montauk chair, and then Tesla teleportation, and then chronovision, the Stargate, the plasma confinement chamber, and so forth. So what they were doing was an integrated program that they give in these classified defense-related research and development programs. There were something like 50,000 people in my generation caught up in these programs. Um, you basically, we, we had the specialized lesson plans in Galileo, this sort of DARPA and Ivy League and SIV um, uh, or Servicio Intelligentsia Vaticano specialized chapters, like here's Chronovision, you know, here's Tesla teleportation, here's a chapter on Tesla, here's a chapter on T. Thompson Brown, here's a chapter on Walter Russell explaining the difference between positive and negative electricity and so forth. So they were giving us all this historical and science training. We were all high IQ and highly psychic children. In fact, we all began initially as remote viewers for the Office of Naval Intelligence. And then they began dropping in these other lesson plans and then gradually taking us off campus to these defense contractor locations throughout New Jersey. And then that those would take us to New Mexico, sometimes Ohio, because if the teleportation failed, we would show up near the Swagelock uh, company headquarters in Solon, Ohio, and so forth. So they just began expanding the ambit. They had specialized sort of quality circles between uh, my, you know myself and my peers in the in my learning lab at my public elementary school, which is Mountview Road School. Maybe my father would give a lecture. Maybe Jack Pruitt. Maybe our special educator. Elaine Gallagher, maybe the special educator Joseph Humer. Uh, there was a young man named Galen who was working with Jack Pruitt. And so they would sit around in a circle and say, okay, okay, kids, let's talk about the chronovisor and how it works. And they gradually brought us along with each device. And then before we did any time travel off campus at a military or defense contractor location, they would do an acclimation trip to that location. That's how I ended up meeting a 25-year-old future quite prominent broadcaster named uh, Art Bell at ITT Defense Communications in October of 1971. And he remembered it, and we remembered meeting each other. And Art confirmed that in his interview with me on August uh, 14, 2015. And so we would go out to these locations and get an acclimation trip, and then on the next trip, we would travel in time. Now, how they prepared us for getting lost in time, because, uh, you know, we were children of lost in space, you know, in terms of television, but we realized we could be lost in time. For example, when we were teleporting to Santa Fe, they had us learn the street plan to Santa Fe, but more than that, they said, children, if you jump here in 1971 and get there, let's say, in 1791, or 1931, it was always you know 20 year increments because that's the basic pulse of the earth represented for example in tree ring, tree ring cycles. We want you to ask a, uh, you know, a, a parish priest, a sheriff, a mayor, a wealthy business person, 
tell them that your parents have been killed traveling to, to Mexico and will they adopt you? Because kids, you have to understand that we're having you memorize the street plan of Santa Fe in case you get lost in 1971 going to that other place in, in space from New Jersey. But if you arrive there somewhere else in time, we will not be able to rescue you because there weren't teleporters then. You will be stuck in that past time. And so fortunately, when we jumped through the device in 1971 and got to Santa Fe in 1991, the very year when I was up in Portland, Oregon, completing my last year of, of my legal education at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, um, you know, a, a 10-year-old version of me was popping out in Santa Fe. And so I was in two places at one time in that, in that sense. My 30-year-old self was in Portland studying law, and my 10-year-old self was in Santa Fe arriving in 1991 when I had come from 1971. So fortunately, when that happened, we were able to get back from Sandia back to Curtis Wright 1971 because it was in the future and the teleporters existed. But we knew from the beginning if that had been in the opposite direction and we had come out in 19, I don't know, 1931 or 1911, it was going to be a catastrophe. We we're going to be stuck in time. Now, when we did use the chronovisor, they explained that when we first went and we were in, not in for 15 minutes, that density effect would not occur because we would be what Jack Pruitt called only a supraluminal superimposition on time space. And he used the example like certain ghosts are in our area of the time space continuum. Those are often uh, residual hauntings. They are superluminal superimpositions of people who once lived on Earth. Now, some, of course, were sp are spiritual hauntings of people still alive. Um, well, the, the, or earthbound spirits. But they explained that there are residual hauntings from the past, and that's what we would look like. Um, for example, when they sent me to, to visit General George Washington. But if we ever remained in for more than 15 minutes, it went from um, third dimensional to fourth dimensional chronovision, and we were actually there and had to be extracted. So we had specialized training of what to do in an emergency or a disaster on the program. Okay. But it wasn't complete because we knew it still didn't get us home if we were stuck too far in the past. Well, you just brought something up that uh, I guess this is the logical next place for me to go. You brought up uh, you were sent back to either be around or observe or uh, interact with George Washington. My question is yes. this. We, we Anybody who has watched... Any kind of Hollywood production on time travel, whether it be Back to the Future, is, is you know one of the one of those uh, those home. You know, everybody knows about that one. We always learn about the the very serious situation of creating a paradox and the butterfly effect being one of those situations where you're not necessarily coming face to face with your future self and the whole world, uh, the whole universe exploding, but being able to even take one average person off of their daily routine by a minute will create some kind of a domino effect that could affect 
major portions of the world and world history. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the butterfly effect, especially if you're talking to people like or being around people like George Washington? Yes, the butterfly effect was sometimes manifest on Project Pegasus, just as we proved the multiverse and the time-space continuum. Now, let's reference the butterfly effect in terms of the multiverse. There were butterfly effects that I and some of the other children in the program directly witnessed, so I can just cite one of the examples I just gave of the what I call the quantum excursion when we jumped through the teleporter in New Jersey in 1971 and came out in 1991 in Santa Fe and had to have the security director for the whole state capitol complex there contact Sandia. Um, in fact, I, t- I pulled rank as essentially the captain of blue team and, and, and said to the assistant uh, security chief of the Santa Fe state capitol grounds, no, are you the, the security director? And he said, no. And I said, please get him. And then I said to him, sir, you may not believe me, but at the end of the day, I'm 2,005 miles and 20 years from home. So please call them, namely Sandia. Okay, now, when we came back to New Jersey from that very event, two of the other children and I realized that somebody was missing. I think her name was either Megan or Heather. She had been one of the eight to 10 kids who had jumped through at Curtis Wright and had that quantum excursion from 1971 to 1991. But then when we all spent a half hour wearing specialized equipment, including helmets and oxygen masks, to get back to New Jersey 1971, one of the children did not show up at our learning lab at Mountree Road School in Morris Plains ever again. So that was an example of the actual functioning of the butterfly effect. It's not axiomatic that if you you know, go walking in Yosemite, one little um, piece of clover that you pick up could determine the fate of human beings or cause, you know, Sasquatch to exist in Yosemite or something. It's more like, because there's a multiverse, okay, there are entirely similar, dissimilar, and, and entirely dissimilar things going on at multiple data points throughout the multiverse. So let me just cite one example. A number of years ago when some teenagers were walking up Mount Diablo in Northern California, a transformer exploded and there was a cascade of sparks, like an umbrella of sparks up on Mount Diablo in front of them, and they saw through to a Civil War battle going on, even though there weren't any Civil War battles in California, not, you know, battles between between the the Blue Union and the Gray Confederate uh, soldiers. And so there in California, that at that time-space location, in a slightly different dimension that was focused in by the cascade of sparks, that non-local uh, sort of event threshold of the Civil War was reaching California. So there are multiple events, both similar, dissimilar, and entirely dissimilar, going on all over the place. I mean... Right now, a speech by Julius Caesar may be zipping right past our faces. In other words, there are all these multiplicity of events going on at slightly different angle. So the, the, the butterfly effect 
was working on Project Pegasus, but it wasn't axiomatic that a tiny little change mattered because you had to have some kind of displacement into a slightly different dimension to either detect that or to experience that. So in other words, that that poor individual who got lost probably was sent into another dimension when we uh, either teleported, well, it wasn't when we teleported to Santa Fe because they took a role and everybody was there. It was when we returned to New Jersey. That little girl was lost. And, you know, I've often thought if they do a feature film about my experiences, I even have, the, you know, the song that would be played for that event. She was lost in time space or we were moved slightly by the butterfly effect into a reality where she was never born or never came to that school or was never placed in Project Pegasus. I don't know. All I know is that, yes, a small butterfly effect occurred. But was it usually still my family when I went back to our house? Yes. But one time it wasn't. It was an entirely different family living there. So that, in a sense, was the butterfly effect in the sense that I was sent back from uh, Sandia National Labs back to Curtis Wright, but it was my my New Jersey in a different dimension. This my is home a, state. This is this is pretty much just. Uh, it's making watching uh, David Lynch's Twin Peaks a lot more. I can actually. I'm digesting Twin Peaks a lot more now. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched that, but it's. Uh, I yeah, did. Yeah, yes. especially the the third season. It's. Uh, and as you're saying this, it's making me remember something I've heard you talk about in previous interviews about your stories where you went multiple times to places like Ford's Theater for the assassination of of, uh, of President Lincoln. And uh, and I, I remember you saying that there were there were very weird things that were different every time, like the the, yes. the person at the, t- the box office. Or, talk a little bit about that, and did that, are you, do you say, is that have anything to do with your presence there, or is it you're just constantly going back to other alt, other dimensions that this event was playing out over and over again? And, and Right, well that kind of contextualizes both the multiverse and the butterfly effect much more accurately. At the Surreal's Cultural Center, which is kind of an early WPA, Depression-era community mm-hmm. center, on the left side of Highway 14, when you before you make a right into Surreal's or go left around the curve to Madrid, New Mexico, there was a, in the summer of 1971, and by that I mean when my dad and I teleported to 1971, spent the whole summer there, and then teleported home at the end of that summer so as to arrive like 15 minutes after we had left. So I call it my first summer of 1971. I spent, I had two summers of 70, 71, 73 access from fall of 71, and 72. And it took me literally decades to de-link and figure out those displacements in time space. But we were at the Surreal's Cultural Center in summer of 71, the first summer of 71, and they would they ex- had explained how they were sending me to Ford's Theater to get behind the Lincoln's balcony seating and see who shot Mr. Lincoln, President Lincoln. I believe they had a concern that it was Major Henry Rathbone sitting nearby him because later, after witnessing the, uh, the murder of our, our great president, Abraham Lincoln, he would go on to kill the woman sitting next to him, Clara Harris. So I think they were concerned that 
Major Rathbone may have been suffering from PTSD from the war as a Union major or was angry at Lincoln or dawdling during that first year when he was just really asking McClellan, well, if you aren't going to use the U.S. Army, may I? You know, Lincoln was kind of kind of blowing it there during the first year of the, of the Civil War. So Rathbone may have been angry at him for the death of all of his, probably his high school classmates. You know, in many war, battles of the Civil War, half of a particular high school would die together in one battle because all of the state and local um, soldiers were going there with their peers from their high schools and so forth, from their hometowns in particular states. So I think they had a fear that it wasn't John Wilkes Booth. It was either Lincoln committing suicide, Mrs. Lincoln killing him because he was having an extramarital affair or something, or Rathbone. I think it was Rathbone. So you, so you never, the, every time you've gone back there, you never saw John Wilkes Booth kill Lincoln? No, and I, I, went, I was sent eight times, and I saw the Lincolns coming into Ford's Theater, and I once got behind their seating and saw President Lincoln sitting there, and he looked like a suit of bones. He was incredibly emaciated, just as he was when he walked in um, to Ford's Theater, kind of hobbling in a hobbled kind of way kind of almost crunched over. He was very emaciated by 1865. But I, I had said in many radio interviews, even with George Norrie on Coast to Coast, or when I was interviewed um, for William Shatner's uh, Weird or What on, what, the History Channel, um, that every time, or six of the times they sent me to Ford's Theater, that the Lincolns weren't there. And then a researcher named John Boda in this country found that there was a, an understandable reason for that, and that was the Lincolns came to Ford's Theater like 15 to 30 minutes late. So when DARPA's Project Pegasus was sending me there in 1971, what, 106 years after Lincoln's uh, shooting at Ford's Theater, they were sending me to 8 o'clock on April 15th of 1865, Ford's Theater, Washington, D.C., but that was too early. And That's why I never and saw the Lincoln. And you only, have two, you only have 15 minutes. Right, before a density effect occurred. And there were times, a number of times it did, and the, the portal was out in the dirt outside. But just to kind of go, go back a tick, um, when, they, when they sent me there on the dirt in front of Ford's Theater, I would just walk in to, it wasn't a, um, a booth, it was a table that was set up in the doorway. And one time it would be, would be a man. The next time they sent me would be that man and his son. The third time it would be his son. The fourth time it would be his son and his son's best friend. Then it would be his son's best friend and that individual's sister and so forth. It was always a different person. Then I would work farther into the, into the lobby after I explained that my dad was working for the Lincoln administration. And I was dressed like in a little Lord Fauntleroy kind of finery. I was quite embarrassed to be wearing that. And, but they wanted me to look like the son of a Lincoln administration official, which I had to say to get in to Ford's Theater and up to the balcony seating without having a ticket. They apparently didn't have a fine enough reproduction of the tickets of that night. You know, Our American Cousin starring Laura, starring Laura Keene. And um, I would always get in, but then it would be like a man would walk by talking to two, you know, a dandy talking to two uh, 
uh, lovely damsels who looked like my twin sisters. And then another time I was sent, it was just one woman. And that one time I was looking to my right and I saw myself moving along right along with me and I thought it was a hallway mirror and then that image of me walked off the wall and I thought, my God, that's me during a future trip. Oh. Then when I did that future trip about on my sixth probe via uh, Chronovisor from the Surreal Cultural Center in 1971, I looked over to my left and there I was on my left. We have been told, however, that if we ever went to like New Mexico after we had teleported home or touched ourselves from a previous chronovised image, they wanted to avoid that because they thought there might be, what, the curve of binding energy, as John McPhee put it, and there would be a massive explosion. So that was dangerous when they were sending me to Ford's Theater. But I, I survived, and I was really more proud of the fact that I advised General George Washington to retreat his troops from New York Harbor because I want all of my fellow Americans to know that the person who ran for president in 2016 and got about 25,000 votes was the American who was sent back in time to advise General George Washington to retreat his troops from New York Harbor. That was my mission, and that allowed the Revolutionary Army to be saved. And uh, also that as a result of being in the Josephine Cobb image of Lincoln at Gettysburg, when they sent me to, what was it, November 19th, 1863, and I ended up in that famous image, which was until like 2007, the only photograph showing Lincoln at Gettysburg on the day he gave the speech there. As a result, I was the only living American featured in Canon Rick Burns' The Civil War. Now, did that qualify to me to be elected president? No, I think I had other qualifying uh, characteristics as an individual. But I just want Americans to know they are not being told the truth, even about what our great, uniquely American civilization has accomplished. I am one of those Americans. I met with General George Washington. That is not an urban legend, a conspiracy theory, or some science fiction fantasy. That is American history. That is what I got my BA in at UCLA, studying with Robert Dalek and the rest of those brilliant historians at UCLA during those years. Um, I'm just sharing this so that Americans know that somebody who was telling the truth about not only our time travel accomplishments, but the fact that as a result, the 1970s got interpolated in 1776 needs to be known. It's something that our great nation accomplished. Okay. And I was there. I participated. That's what I, I okay, so I was going to ask you, because, and I, I see that some of this has been percolating in the chat room as well, and it's a wonderful question, and I want to get around to this right after I ask this next question. The first one was about Mandela Effect, because um, what, what you're describing as far as multiverse goes seems like it could be a really great way of ca encapsulating what everybody's theorizing about Mandela. But here's my question about 1776 and Washington's um, miraculous escape from Brooklyn. Um, and, and that was with, well, he, yeah, he's in Brooklyn Heights, but the uh, his uh, his mil his army was down at. Uh, at New York Harbor, right? Right. Well, well my All question those is West this. Virginia sharpshooters were killed, yeah. You just said that if it weren't for your trip through time, your mission to warn Washington and save 
the revolution at that point i mean i mean that 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 would insinuate that the army prior to your trip in 1960 had failed but you are no 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 that's the mystery of, of retro causation no i was always there in fact they found chronovisor images of me briefing washington and that's why they sent me they literally had me memorize the 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 demarche that i gave general washington so that's the mystery of uh, the paradox of time travel when you go back in time you can't change the past because you're there so they sent me back because i always was in the event and they they thought well we don't want to we don't want to push this time space this area of time space to another um time place in time space where where Washington doesn't retreat his troops but in this dimension where that was always history before I went there or when I was for example always in the Josephine Com image before going to Gettysburg on November 19th 1863 so the paradox of retro causation is you can't go back to the past in this dimension to change the past because you're in the past you can only go back to fulfill it and that's what I did so before I went to visit General Washington I had already done so I didn't know it because DARPA hadn't told me but they said Andy you've got a very important assignment we have filmed you briefing General George Washington at Brooklyn Heights to retreat his his troops um, you know from New York Harbor and escaped to Manhattan, which they did. And in fact, I was down in the swale, as were some of the other kids that went with me, when all of the troops were coming up the swale saying, are you boys angels? We've heard that before he left for Manhattan, uh, General Washington said you were angels. In fact, this is part of American history that I want known. You know that famous Curry and I drawing of Washington in his tent at Brooklyn Heights and there's a little boy outside his tent that is me based on Washington telling that story for the rest of his life that during the revolution he was visited by angels he was not he was visited by US child chrononauts from the 1970s and I was one of them how can I spend four years studying American history in fact especially presidential history at UCLA and not reveal this to my fellow citizens it was imperative it was imperative that i do so because i knew that this is what had shaped 1776 and the success of washington in this dimension but they knew if they decided to not send me after finding me via chronovision at that time place in time space then our time place might shift to an america that didn't exist we might all find ourselves speaking perfectly unaccented British English rather than American English or even German which lost at the Constitutional Convention by one vote to English as our national language so they knew these kinds of trade-offs and they knew that they could send me there to fulfill what they wanted to fulfill but not to change it so whenever I get a call from somebody asking me to tell them how to go back in time and overcome a disease or save a deceased loved one from an accident or an illness or whatever I, I can't do so and they can't do so because you can't go back into the past or future and change things because that's where you are
How can you change a reality that you're in when you time travel to it? It's it, that event. It's a it's a it's a great question, and it blows my my mind. Actually, breaks when I try to conceive of it. And I, I've been looking as you're saying this. I have the the Gettysburg photo, but I'm looking for the Cur- Cur- Courier and Ives uh, photo. I wish I had known this prior to our call. It's not, so. a, it's not a photo. It's 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 a drawing. The, the drawing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Illustration. Yeah. Right. I'm yeah. I'm looking for that, and I, I uh, I guess I sh- I wish I had a little bit of more foresight. I could have Just found that. Just put in. Um, Drawing General Washington, Courier, and Ives. And I did. Two R's in Courier. Now, Ives is, I believe, I V E S. I V E S. That yeah. came out like in the 1930s or the 1830s or something. But it was based on Washington always telling the story how during the Revolution he was visited by these young angels. He was even asking, he was saying, uh, Andrew, that, that's your name, right? Didn't you tell me that your name was Andrew? He sounded like King Charles III. You know, he sounded British because he was a British gentleman fighting for the rights of a of a British gentleman. Um, I mean, even Ben Franklin was identified as B. Franklin Esquire on statues of him, which was originally not a lawyer, but halfway between a lord and a gentleman. Okay, so Washington had kind of a British accent, and he said, "Well, Andrew, that's your, that's your name, right? Uh, oh, oh, chap. Yeah. Well, Andrew." Um, you're saying that your time travelers from the 1970s? Well, listen, I, I know about travel. If, if I, for example, uh, uh, travel between uh, New York City and Philadelphia, uh, I can walk or perhaps ride a, a stallion uh, or uh, take a carriage. But what do you mean by time travel? I, I don't understand this, this phrase you're using. And Tell me, son, are, are you angels? You, surely you must be angels. So what I'm saying, Frank, is that General George Washington quizzed me about whether we were angels. He thought we were angels. He talked about it for the rest of his life. And yet it went down in the Courier Knives drawing as a little boy outside his tent, and that was actually more accurate than the story that Washington had been telling all those years until the end of his life. Well, but it yeah, was us. But here's the thing: you you don't have, as a child, especially, you don't have any autonomy on where you're going and what your mission is. So, did, did DARPA w- was telling you to go and meet and warn, uh, give give uh, uh, military advice to George Washington? They not only told me that I was; they had me learn and memorize what they had recorded me saying when they used chronovision to see me going there because the past present and future exist all the time it, it, it's all there it's just your perspective and they had found a way to send us there to another time place and time space so they recorded what i said to washington see they were studying chronovised images from the past initially with books letters diaries postcards records documents and they were comparing the memorialized general and then President George Washington to what they were getting via chronovision. And they slapped their foreheads and said, oh my God, Ray's son Andrew is doing the demarche to General Washington. So they came to me at Mount View Road School in Morris Plains, New Jersey, a woman from DARPA. She only came once. She wasn't one of my regular instructors in the program. And she sat me down in this little tiny room at my elementary school and said, Andrew, I'm going to share something with you very sensitive. 
You cannot tell anybody. When we used the chronovisor on General George Washington in August of 1776, we found the interior of his tent at Brooklyn Heights right before he ordered his troops to retreat from New York Harbor en route to Manhattan, the island of Manhattan. And Andrew, we want you to know that it was you. So don't worry, you do a great job on the demarche, but you're gonna have to learn that demarche and then go there and brief General George Washington. So let's show you a picture of what General Washington looks like again. So when you go there, you're just gonna realize he's just a great man who helped found our country. And so I, I have it in my book, I kind of spent a lot of memory work, you know, memorying out, remembering after 50 years what I told him in when I was sent to 1776 in 1970 in, from my time. I said something like, General George Washington, we are time travelers from your own future. We have been sent here by the government of our nation, the United States of America, to tell you that you are destined to win the war upon which you are currently engaged. Um, the winning of this war will lead to the founding of the greatest uh, nation in the history of Earth that you will be the first president of that country. It will be called the United States of America. And as a result of your victory in this war as its leader and being the first president of the United States of America after the Articles of Confederation, um, um, you know, 1789 forward, you will be known for all time in the history of this great country as the father of your country. But sir, General Washington, we have been sent here to tell you that none of these propitious events, I had to learn the word propitious, because that's what they had heard me and recorded me saying to Washington, none of these propitious or propitious events will happen unless you retreat your troops immediately from New York Harbor. And he said, well, uh, Andrew, I, I'm shocked. Uh, how do I know that you're from another time? And what do you mean about time travel? So then we went into all that I just previously told you. So he was mystified. And then after further discussion, when I showed him a, a two-dimensional sort of hologram from what like was coming out in National Geographic at that time, it was a an American bald eagle kind of landing on a red, white, and blue crest. And I said, well, General Washington, I knew that you might not believe us. So I was given this artifact, this printed artifact, to show you and so that you would believe what we're telling you. And I handed that hologram to General Washington and as instructed said, if you look at that, sir, surely, General Washington, that is not from your time and place. And he said, well, I must agree, Andrew. Surely I'm going to have to show old Ben Franklin this. I'm, I imagine he, he's going to be fascinated. Because it was a printing artifact from the 1970s. So Washington got that. He thought a little. He sort of put his his fingers up to his mouth. And by the way, he had granny glasses, just like Franklin. That really surprised me. But he had a very hammy sort of um, 
German face. I wouldn't even be surprised if Washington was von Wessington or something. Well, you know, it's a very hammy. And, well, and, and face. yeah, and Andrew. The, here, here's the, here's the, and I, I I'm so, I'm sorry to interrupt with this because this is a very compelling uh, part of your you know your your total story here. But I would have to imagine that this for at least people a lot of people in this audience this this right here would be one of the harder pills to swallow for some only because I think it would be very hard for anybody who is you know looks into the the culture the nature of government as it is today and would ever think that even just even 40 50 years ago or so there would be any kind of group on the inside especially in DARPA that would be benevolent enough and love America and want to see it succeed enough that it would uh, it, it would go on an endeavor to to help fortify it as we as we can see there's all, all guns are pointed inward on our on us to try to hasten our destruction at this point it, it this is even hard for me to conceive uh, can conceive of just because it's such a benevolent mission and I uh, well they they had all look look the Americans I served with in DARPA's Project Pegasus were loyal, patriotic, great Americans, including my late father. Most of them had served in World War II. My father is a combat medic and ambulance driver in France and Germany during the war. He had had paratrooper training at, at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. He was there in France and Germany uh, being delivered by a glider to set the arms and legs that had been broken during our parachute missions into France and Germany. And they were not um, members of the deep state trying to subvert the American Revolution. They wanted it continued. And that's what I've been trying to do by telling the truth to the American people about the fact that we have Tesla teleportation that can completely replace planes, trains, and automobiles. You know, Frank, we lose as many Americans every year from automobiles, 50,000 has died during all 13 years of the Vietnam War. But our colleges aren't up in protest about what Ralph Nader called unsafe at any speed, the modern automobile. Um, we also have as many uh, casualties, 300,000 a year. I'm trying to bring about teleportation to achieve a better, safer world and America. But in this area, I'm trying to correct the history that was given to us with true history so we can get back on course and remember the America that was supposed to be, one in which the deep state didn't exist, one in which the, in which the Fourth Reich was not a, a faction that our government got into an unholy alliance with to even, you know, safeguard Hitler so he could get to Argentina on way to Paraguay and live until 1962 just because so we could get German rocket experts to fight the Soviet Russians. I'm trying to, I'm engaged in a corrective function in American history. So we have to avoid the president, the presentist uh, violation in historiography saying that now because we're worried about abuses of power by the U.S. intelligence community and U.S. military and corporations, that therefore it's hard to believe that these people like Harold Agnew and Sterling Colgate and my late father were villains. They weren't. I wasn't. He wasn't. We were trying to prevent America from going into the dustbin, as one of the CIA people on the project, Courtney M. Hunt, once said to me. We were trying to protect the country. So when they sent me to um, 
to visit Washington, and I showed him that hologram, he then resolutely stood up, and with the sort of magisterial, resolute brilliance of General George Washington, later President Washington, he said, I shall order the retreat immediately. So I witnessed the actual basis by which, let's say, a David McCulloch can write 1776, circa, what, 2005, I think, David put out that book, and they're still saying we don't know why General George Washington retreated his troops from New York Harbor. I do. I told him to. Now, you can choose not to believe that. You can choose to pull what I call a cliff high and say, well, Andy must be delusional because time travel doesn't exist. And my response to Mr. High is, how do you know that? My father and I were working with the Manhattan Project physicists like Edward Teller and Harold Agnew. Who would develop time travel besides somebody like my father who studied engineering at Lehigh at the world's leading electrical engineering program and then repeated Tesla's teleportation experiments at the Edison Labs? Who would be on such a project? So what I'm saying is that explanations that violate historiography and true history are even being done by our leading physicists. Michio Kaku, Ronald Mallet, the late Stephen Hawking, David uh, Deutsch of Oxford. They are stating that they, don't, that they weren't led into these black projects, and then they're saying they know that time travel hasn't been developed. I'm here to say what really disturbed Dr. Mallet. It's been done. It was done by DARPA. I was in it. I, I, I spoke to my father, Courtney Hunt to the CIA, Dr. Agnew, Dr. Colgate, a engineer admitted into professional engineering status in New Jersey and California, like my late father was, named Captain Lewis B. Wary, W-A-R-Y. He saw the Tesla teleporter at Curtis Wright when he was working directing 1,500 American on a cooling system on one of our most advanced nuclear submarines. And he said, what's that? And then he went by that room again, it, was, it, was, it had disappeared. In other words, I had a professional engineer in New Jersey who saw the Tesla teleporter and didn't know what it was. I had witnesses, okay? We analyzed the Josephine Cobb image at me at Gettysburg, and just like I had said, I was disappearing from view when the picture was taken and going back to East Hanover, New Jersey to again meet my late father and Sterling Colgate at that totally windowless brick building in East Hanover, where the, the uh, plasma confinement chamber was located, uh, Brett Stillings, my fellow Mars astronaut, and John Gannon analyzed that picture, and they found that in the picture, at the tightest, uh, the tightest uh, tuning in of the photograph, you can see um, that my, um, my um, eye socket and my cheekbones are disappearing from view. Yeah, so in other words, it looks like a blank a face. Non We're looking at it right now. It looks like a blank face. Well, when you tuned it up, there was distortion of the cheekbone and the, the eye socket. Now, by the way, when I looked at that picture when it was published in a U.S. news magazine in like 1972, right before I moved to California from New Jersey, I showed that to one of my pictures, well, excuse me, one of those pictures to one of my sisters, and I said, sis, that's me in Gettysburg. And she said, no, it isn't. It's just some boy that looks like you in Gettysburg. I then showed it to my father as he was reading the Sunday New York Times on his easy chair inside the living room. And he said, yep, just don't tell anybody. 
when that picture was originally published before it became the only classified photograph at the National Archives, the only classified historical photograph in the U.S. archives, the National Archives. You could see that that was me. But now what I said I was wearing can be seen, the fact that I had been in a Union Bugle Boy outfit that John Lawrence Burns had outfitted me with these kind of long shoes that are going undergoing going under under my pants and so forth I had like a hodgepodge of clothes I even went to the millinery shop in Gettysburg that David Kendallhart and Eliza Ann Bowen owned I, John Lawrence Burns as he was fitting me with the clothes <clears throat> was kind of confronted by Mrs. Kendallhart Eliza Ann Bowen and John Lawrence um, not John Lawrence Burns, but David Kendallhart is identi was identified in the town um, al almanac of that time as attorney, town council president, and shoemaker. And John Lawrence Burns was identified as constable and cobbler. Gettysburg was a small southern Pennsylvania uh, market town and Crossroads, all of those streets, Baltimore, Washington, Emmitsburg, pointed to distant towns or cities in America. And I knew I was going to walk down um, uh, Baltimore. No, not Baltimore. This was Washington. I was going to walk down Washington and make a left at um, Upper Emmitsburg Pike, now known as Ehrenberg Road, and go into that millinery shop. When the shops in Gettysburg only had like a wooden sidewalk with like three or four shops, I went back to Gettysburg in 2013, the first American to return to an American city 150 years after he first went there. That is fact. That is true history. So anyway, I was prepared, dressed in a Union Bugle Boy outfit, but not given a bugle. And when I asked Valerie, the woman who dressed me, why not? She said, Andy, I see in your records here you play alto saxophone, not trumpet. I don't want you to take a bugle and not be able to play it. Because if you were a Union Bugle Boy, you'd know how to play all, all kinds of songs, like taps or whatever. Yeah, you don't want so, to be put on the spot, huh? Right. right. So, but again, there were times when the, um, when the butterfly effect occurred, like that time I went back to our house and it was a different family. And when that little girl didn't return from, uh, from uh, Sandia, when we got transplanted, you know, the quantum excursion to, uh, to, uh, 1991 from 1971. Um, so I knew that I might not get back from Gettysburg. I knew I might not get back from briefing Washington, Well, but I knew I would participate in history and I was proud to do it. So well, I'm telling the truth. Oh, I mean, and, and I'm following along here and I'm uh, seriously, this has been a, uh, one hell of a ride and I, I can't, I, my, my thing right now is I we definitely have to do more on this. I want to get into even more detail, but we're, we are up against the clock soon. So I, I want to ask a, a modern question about, because you had said something a few minutes ago about corrective functions and, and being able to go and, and do some corrective work. And uh, that was with Washington. I wanted to ask you something modern before we at least have to do something about the jump rooms and Project Mars uh, before we, we wrap up here. So the first thing I want to ask you is is actually a theory uh, that is 
you know, it, it is rooted in some historical fact, at least that we've been able to confirm, and it's very popular among at least people in this this audience and audiences like it, and that is this question about whether or not Donald Trump had any kind of connection to the Tesla technology because of his his uncle John Trump being part of the reclamation crew that went and grabbed all of Tesla's stuff after his death in that hotel that he was living at and uh, and whether or not he had any you know there's just a lot of time travel theories about the the Trumps the time traveling Trumps and whether or not they uh, were beneficiaries of this technology real quick about that because I want to get to the jump rooms you have any any uh, insight on that I have no direct evidence that President Trump had prior knowledge. I did have, I was at a banquet in Albuquerque in 1971 when both Bushes were there and they knew. In fact, George W. got right in front of my face and said, have you heard Andy? My daddy and I are gonna be president. (laughs) And uh, you know, his father would say, not W, don't go there, come on, just, you know, hold it, no, don't go there. And then I was at a smaller luncheon with Bill Clinton on my left, Harold Agnew, Ivan Browning when he was director of science and technology for CIE, and my father and Joe Connison from Connison from the Ralph M. Parsons company. They were both on the project. And I was sitting right next to a very young Bill Clinton. I mean, I would think he might've even been like at Georgetown. And they said, how are you doing with the information, Bill? And he said in his native Arkansas twang, well, you know, fellas, I know you're all members of the atomic research community, and I know you're always doing um, amazing things by building more destructive uh, nuclear bombs, nuclear weapons, but some mornings I have to get up and look in the mirror and I have to pinch myself and say, me, Bill Clinton, President of the United States? Well, fellas, that dog don't hunt, okay? So I know that those three had prior knowledge of their presidencies. I also know that Barry Satoro, who later took the name of a fellow student of Stanley Ann Dunham, his putative mother, who I don't believe was his mother, I believe she was his handler for the CIA, who took the name Barack Obama, he and I were told in 1980, when not DARPA, but the DOD was training us for Mars service, that we were both future presidents, he in his late 40s and me in my late 60s. I'm sharing that not because I'm gonna be running for president again. I may run for the Senate, but maybe it'll happen, I don't know. But I'm not gonna run for the presidency. Maybe I end up president, I don't know. But now, regarding President Trump, I do know that when he was not even, when he was about 40, around 1986, he was on the Phil Donahue show, and my late father, who was not CIA, but he had reporting requirements to all US intel agencies and military departments shushed me while Mr. Trump was being interviewed by Phil Donahue and said, quiet, Andy, I want to listen to this guy. He's one of our future presidents. So I know the CIA knew about the Trump presidency. Now, it is true that John Trump, his uncle, was on the one of the teams that recovered Tesla's paperwork, either FBI or War Department, which later, of course, became the Department of Defense. Uh, we also know that the the books of Ingersoll Lockwood from around 1900, uh, one of them which I think is called Baron Trump, 
one of which is called like The Last President, published around 1900, mentions the Trump name, the um, the uh, pre uh, Trump's vice president, uh, whose name is escaping me for some reason. Pence. Uh, Pence, Mike Pence. Pence is listed not as like vice president, but as like the interior secretary. And so the, the, the novels of Ingersoll Lockwood may have been just one of those amazing psychic impressions of a Trump presidency, or may have been planted in the past by uh, Project Pegasus. I don't know. I do know that when I wrote President Trump on July 28th of 2020 about declassifying the American presence on Mars going back to 1964, uh, a few weeks later, Eric Trump and, uh, and President Donald Trump said at the Wednesday and Thursday night of the RNC that we have to finally go to Mars. And there I was as a former writer for, for Jacques Cousteau for three years, a protege of editor Norman Cousins, somebody who published multiple uh, environmental policy papers at the international peer-reviewed level, who was admitted to the federal and state bar in Washington State, who had, here, here in Washington State, who had worked in two classified defense projects for the U.S. government, even when he was a child and a young adult, when Mr. Trump was still a kind of a, a plutocrat playboy, <laughs> that I was telling him about our presence on Mars, and he had his son, and he himself, I think, responded, because supposedly he reads everything, suggesting that we finally have to go to Mars. In the case of the letter that I wrote to former President Obama, he had previously made fun of his fellow Mars astronauts, and when I wrote him again on July 28th of 2020, when I sent the letter to, as well, to President Trump, he changed his position and, and admitted there was a secret space program, but he just couldn't talk about it. So there's been some movement. You know, we had movement by the Israeli General Haim Ashed acknowledging on December 9th of 2020. I remember that. The American presence on the, on the Red Planet. So we're getting some movement. When, when you say the when you say American or we need to go to Mars, now like I said, we it's eleven forty five over here on the East Coast, and uh, we have to we have to wrap up sometime around midnight. But I always knew if okay. we were going to do this the right way, I'd love to have you back as part of maybe like sure. a, a series. Come back, Frank. that would that'd be great. But yeah. to to be able to do this right and not jump and not to rush through anything, I, as far as these jump rooms. Uh, Project Mars, you said this was as when we were talking about chronovising and time travel with Pegasus, this you described as the advent of interdimensional. Now, when we, yes. you know, we coming up through um, American education as little children, we learn about the solar system and the physical location of where Mars and Saturn and Jupiter is all that and all that is. We're thinking physical, we're thinking this frequency of light, we're not thinking about another dimension. So how does interdimensional, uh, w what is interdimensional about your uh, going to Mars, and why is going to Mars so important? Good questions. Time travel is dimensional travel. If, if we went to New Mexico in fall of 1971 and arrived at the beginning of the summer of 1973, which we did, and my father's friend Connie Chavez just fell off her chair at the La Hacienda restaurant in Old Town Albuquerque when I went over to where they were located in the restaurant and answered my dad's question, which what, what year it was. And I said, what year it is? It's 1971, isn't it? 
but it was the beginning of the summer of 71. That is, that was time travel. That's what I mean about dimensional travel. Now, what I mean about the advance that was made within 10 years when Project Mars was launched is we weren't necessarily going to the Mars in the sky in the past, present, or future. We were going to what they thought was Mars, but wait a minute. They weren't traveling there with like Tesla teleportation. They were using the aeronautical repositioning chamber. We would go into an elevator. It would morph from a box into a cylinder, and then initially about 20 minutes and then eight minutes or so as the what we call Mars was drawing closer to our planet, it would open up in the sub-basement of a U.S. facility. There are about eight in the middle latitudes of Mars, okay? the very nicer areas of Mars, not the really hot, not the really frozen. Now, what I think was going on in what we call Project Mars was interdimensional travel as it was then appearing in science fiction novels, like the science fiction fantasy mixed with a little soft porn, I guess for young men, known as the Blade series by Richard Lord. I don't know if he was American or British, but it was a famous series from the 70s. It was essentially what Blade was doing. You enter, We were entering a box and traveling interdimensionally. In other words, it wasn't this planet or the history or future of this planet in the past, present, or future, which was either just travel, you know, real-time transit via teleportation was just travel. It was just very fast travel. But with adjustments for the past and future, we still got to places on Earth that either once existed or will exist on Earth. But in the aeronautical repositioning chamber, we were going to another place. I think it was interdimensional, so much so that I don't think they knew it if it was the real Mars that's in our night sky. That would explain why Major Ed Baines would always debrief us for about 45 minutes each time we came home. Okay, Andy, what happened next? Then what happened? Then what did you see? Then what did you do? Then what did the predators do? In other words, they were taking copious notes on everything we had experienced in that realm. I think they knew or suspected that it wasn't Mars in real time. Maybe Elon Musk has been briefed on that fact, and that's why he's still insisting on sending people to Mars for the first time. But I'm so certain that it was interdimensional travel rather than space travel that rather than identifying myself as a U.S. chrononaut um, involved in Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel and a U.S. astronaut uh, involved in Project Mars during the advent of interplanetary exploration, which connotes space, not time-space. I'm now simply saying, and as a, uh, you know, end in the um, Project Mars during the advent of interdimensional travel, and I'm just identifying myself again as a U.S. chrononaut, because I believe that we remained U.S. chrononauts, not astronauts, when we were going to quote-unquote Mars. And that's, that explains why Bernie Mendez suggested several alternate theories for what was really happening. He was actually on the program to answer those types of questions. That it wasn't Mars in the night sky, it was like a Mars-like planet, and they thought originally it was Mars. You know, for example, Penny Bradley has claimed that there was a, a, a German presence 
um, on on the Mars, as did Clark McClellan uh, of NASA, who even claimed there was kind of like a Fourth Reich ethos at NASA where they were doing high Hitler salutes to each other, and not just Werner von Braun, all of them. But there couldn't have been, it couldn't have been the same place because I went up there to quote unquote Mars twenty times or so between 1981 and 1984. And there was no German presence. We weren't trained in German presence. We met no Germans. We saw no German um, insignia, no swastikas, no Prussian eagles. We heard no German accents. There was no German presence on Mars. I began calling that school of the secret space program Germania because I didn't believe it. I'm now leaning towards the probability that we were going to another location in time space but it was not the planetary usufruct known as planet Mars. That's somewhere else. That's interesting. That's very interesting. And I, I got to say, I already have so many questions for the next. And, and you know, my cousin Sherry's here too. We had we we both are probably hello. Bubbling, hello. Yeah. Hello. Sherry says hello. <laughs> we, we we're bubbling with questions, and we're gonna have to we're gonna have to compile them for the next time. Um, I mean, I, I'm thinking about a. We were talking about Mandela effect before, but now you got me thinking about. First of all, I mean, this all started, you were talking to us tonight, this all started about a response. There needing to be a response to extraterrestrial kit craft over D, over the skies of D.C. In, in 1952. So we need to be able to talk about that a little bit more at another time. What about all of these missions, all of these projects were important for meeting the presence? This, this Well, Frank, real quickly. Yeah. Why were the ETs coming? All the nuclear bombs were blowing up. Okay. What could have led That's... to the Mandela effect? The same. Do we have evidence of the Mandela effect even in Ken and Rick Burns' the Civil War? Yes. What does he have Sam Waterston say? That they have thus far so nobly carried on. I memorized the Gettysburg Address as a school student, and it was that they have thus far so nobly advanced. So I believe the Mandela effect is real, but it hasn't been caused by time travel. None of these devices did anything more than sort of local effects in time space sure the mars one was very advanced but you know i don't think they were so disruptive as different uh, exopolitical uh, figures like harry casty was claiming no i don't think it was from these devices like teleporters or chronovisors i think the mandela effect has been happening and it's the net effect of over 2,000 nuclear explosions on earth the very reason that was causing the the ETs to begin visiting us in earnest after uh, uh, August sixth of nineteen forty-five. We okay. So th- th- there's more too. I, I, I when we when you come back, we have to talk about CERN. We have to talk about Antarctica. Uh, I, I mean, but but here's the last thing I, I would like to to get out of you before uh, we we close the books on this, and then me and Sherry will we'll sit behind and just you know share our own thoughts with each other and wrap this this. Uh, this episode up why my question to you why are these jump rooms and these uh, chronovisors in places like museums and community centers instead uh, because is it if it's technological in nature why aren't they put into really well-kept facilities why so public is it are they taking advantage of ley lines of energy is it a highway of portals that we can't see what is this there was no connection between these different devices and ley lines. Okay. Um, ley lines are real, but that wasn't, it was just the devices that did these things. They could put them wherever they wanted. Now, um, 
Um, that's basically my response to that. Was there something else you mentioned regarding, oh, museums. I've been calling for public-private committees to decant certain scenes via Chronovision to the public, like children could see the Gettysburg Address just as I was sent there, or they could see George Washington laying the uh, cornerstone of our nation's capital on September 18th of 1793. That's what I was, I've been calling for for 20 years. That's one of the things I said I would deliver as president if I had been elected in 2016. If I am elected president or become president, that's what I will try to deliver. Now, the reason you want a controlled release of chronovision is privacy is a very important human virtue. And I'm sure we would agree that we want, wouldn't want any of our personal sex lives to become the pornography of the future any more than we would want to see President Lincoln relieving himself in the loo or making love to Mrs. Lincoln. We would want to see the Gettysburg Address or even maybe him meeting with, uh, with uh, his generals during the war, but we wouldn't want to see personal experiences. So I don't support a general release of chronovision, but a controlled release through kind of a public-private committee of distinguished Americans. Similarly, I don't want to have mass time travel because mass time travel by mass people on mass timelines would lead to mass chaos, especially economically and socially. Imagine all of the money in America that would flood into Apple, computers, and Microsoft the day before their initial public offering if people knew what they were going to become. Hmm. So we can't... We can't have mass time travel. I've called for Tesla teleportation in real time, but also the limited use of some time travel, like let's say three lifetimes or three yearly exposures to the Montauk chair used, let's say, under the guidance of a psychotherapist to, let's say, show somebody who has lost a child that five years later they're having another child and bouncing that that beautiful infant on their knee. So I believe that things like the Montauk chair should be semi-disclosed and Tesla teleportation in real time should be introduced. But time travel? No, it would give those time traveling inordinate opportunities to screw everything up. The non-linear reality would become unmanageable. And they knew that. The people like my dad on Project Pegasus could only buy or invest in Texas and Oklahoma oil and natural gas stock when they were on Project Pegasus. That was it. They could not do any other investments on the stock market because they didn't want individuals privateering on what they knew of the future. So I want these historical scenes to be shown. I love American history. I love, for example, the works of Ken, Ken Burns. Um, every one of them. I've seen every one of them. But I, 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 I despair as somebody educated in history at UCLA and who went to some historical experiences for the U.S. government that we still are not revealing true history to the American people. We're, we, we're behind the times. I mean, I was told, um, I, I, was, I was told when I went to 2045 via Stargate and I was shown that you could get into a, a, a teleporter-like device in an elevator-like device in one building and come out in in another building in another city. I did that. Are we going to get there by 2045? 
not as long as everybody says, well, Andy's just telling a science fiction story. I'm not. I'm an experiencer of real historical research and development by the greatest nation on earth, and I even ran for president to publicize this and to get this done, and people are still doubting it. Hmm. I don't know what else I can do. I can't you know, stand on my head and spit nickels or snap my fingers and say, well, this is what happened. The government's going to have to tell you. And the whole evolution of the deep state has complicated this. I mean, I just found out from somebody that, you know, the Nazi salute was being used at at uh, NASA under uh, Werner von Braun. Not as a joke, but as a practice, showing fealty to the Nazis and all the rocket scientists who would come over. That's serious. It looks like we were complicit in getting Hitler to Argentina en route to Paraguay under the regime uh, of Stresner. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, there's there's a lot of questions. Uh, a there's lot of a questions. lot to begin asking about history, and all I've been trying to do is tell the true history of what I know. The existence of what Weber has called the chronicarchy. There has been at least the briefing of future presidents and vice presidents. In addition, I had a lunch with a 29-year-old Richard Bruce Cheney. He knew he was going to be vice president. And look at the role he played on 9-11. He was the U.S. president on 9-11. He ordered the, the, the hit, you know, the strike on Flight 93. This matters. The, the use of time travel to brief these people caused a, a, a 19-, 20-year-old Barry Satoro to know he was going to be a president named Barack Obama. That's probably why he took the name of his, his putative mother, Stanley Ann Dunham's classmate from the University of Hawaii, in 1983, when I met him in West L.A., he was suddenly calling himself Barack Obama, and I knew him as Barry Sotoro, as did other people around L.A. Uh, so this is part of our history, and I'm simply trying to to advance true history. It matters. Well, there is... The, uh, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to do a little bit more of that here because uh, truly it's probably we're probably a couple of episodes away from maybe getting what I would say the, the first couple of volumes of uh, Andrew Bashago on quite frankly because we have we have a, a lot there's I mean I've been taking notes here and squirreling them away and I know that there's going to be more follow-ups as the as the days go on and um, but in the meantime, uh, Andrew, I just want to thank you for your time here tonight. We almost did a full two hours together. Is there, are there, you have a, 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 a blog, a website, a radio show, anything you'd well, like to Well, you know, plug? I've lost a lot of vision from my project experiences and possibly a, a DEW attacks on me when I ran for president and shortly thereafter. I can see, but I'm challenged visually. I may be able to get devices to improve it, so I'm hopeful. Um certainly as a lawyer and writer that matters uh, and a voracious reader um, uh, I, I I was running a couple of websites but projectpegasus.com got stolen and then projectpegasus.net got stolen so I have some papers at projectpegasus.info which my great friend Michael Petrovich here in Washington State put up for me recently I had a projectmars.net that's still up there. I started, when Facebook really took off, I started Project Pegasus, my time travel group on Facebook, and Project Mars, my Mars group on Facebook. And that's grown to like 13,500 
Mars Anomalous, and I think the leading Mars Anomaly uh, group in the world, and then I could sit back and enjoy National Geographic and Ron Howard stealing my 2008 paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars, and even putting capital M-A-R-S on their special edition of National Geographic on Mr. Howard's uh, special documentary about Mars. So I'm even had my stuff stolen by luminaries here in America. I hope I've become one myself. But they're still up there. I'm not reading them. I'm, I'm sometimes narrating written things to them. Like I'm going to be putting some quotable quotes up on those, uh, that and my political site, Andy for America. I'll probably be announcing soon that that's going to be my Senate uh, campaign site. Well, that'd be wonderful. Um, so that, those are good ones to visit. There's always interesting things put up there. Like on Project Pegasus on Facebook, we had like a 76 or 79-year-old British gentleman say that in the very years that I was in Project Pegasus, um, sort of 1968 to 72, 73, he was doing time travel te technical work at Oxford. And as a CanCat, as a graduate of the University of Cambridge, I was very interested in what that man had to say. I can't see an elderly Briton claiming that, that he went to Oxford and was working on time travel there. I'd lo love to know why David Deutsch of Oxford never knew that, just like Stephen Hawking of my alma mater, Cambridge, never knew that, um, just like uh, Michio Kaku and Ronald Mallet have denied that in this country. So I think that one of the things we can contextualize with these alternative media digital platforms in the digital age is that many of our leading scientists are simply apparatchiks working for the deep state to conceal things that have been developed and discovered. Oh, for yeah. example, when I approached Dr. Kaku in 1982 at the Committee to Bridge the Gap, Dan Hirsch's uh, organization in West LA, I began telling him about my time travel experiences and Dr. Kaku walked right around after telling me that he didn't have access to such secrets because he wouldn't work on more destructive nuclear weapons with Edward Teller, one of the physicists on Pegasus. And when I told him I had teleported for Dr. Agnew and, and Dr. Teller, he actually turned around and walked across the auditorium to avoid discussing time travel with me. And then what did Dr. Kaku go on to do? Write books about when time travel will be discovered, if at all. You know, so I, I, I got to say, information that's being spread. Yeah, I, especially when it comes to Michio Kaku, uh, we, we've we've all rolled our eyes collectively when we've seen him make. I think it was just a couple of years ago, three maybe three years ago at most. He was on MSNBC with, I or or maybe three or four. It was with Charlie Rose before he got kicked off for one scandal or another, and uh, he yep. was there talking about how it, uh, cloud seeding through laser technology was something that was just being kicked around right now, whether or not they'd be able to seed clouds and be able to manipulate weather, that it will be a po possible one day through the power of lasers, but we're so far off, whereas we know anybody who has been, any, I mean, even mildly interested in the subject knows that weather manipulation has been militarized in the the, the same decade that you were yep. you were uh you were doing all this uh this this jumping around and i gotta say um and time travel was militarized right right absolutely. it was always in the w division of lanel agnew was the leading the leading the the quintessential manhattan project physicist so that's the 
disaster that I'm trying to correct. I want to see Tesla teleportation in real time so that, let's say, you know, a pregnant woman in London isn't going to be on a commercial airliner and all that radiation up in the sky going to Sydney, Australia, but getting there in several seconds. That's got to be better than 24 hours on a commercial airliner. Absolutely. She doesn't want to have a miscarriage or, or a... Uh, some defect in in her child. I would rather so not fly again. Fighting for humanity's right to teleport, even if we lose some people, even in time space teleporting, we certainly won't lose fifty thousand Americans a year, and have three hundred thousand catastrophic automobile accidents. So that's what I've been fighting for, and we're not going to get that as long as we continue naively believing that the conventional um, scientists of our culture are not government disinformants. Yeah. They are deep state operatives who are disinforming us. I witnessed it right in how Dr. Kaku treated me when I started telling him about my my Tesla teleportation experiments. And 10 years earlier, I thought I left 10 years early, 1972, when I met him in 1982, and what did he do? He turned around and quickly walked away from, and then wrote books about the, the possible advent someday of time travel well so. it's very well said and i know that you are pretty limited with what you um what will you have available on on the net but now that we've been linked together and again very big thanks to aaron moriarty of the uh, truth quest radio show um I- i'd love anything that you have uh, for as an update we'll keep in touch and i'll pass the word along and uh, i can't wait to have you back andrew bashago Thank you for everything tonight, and it's been, at the very least, a very entertaining, mind-blowing way to spend a Saturday evening. So thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> you got it, Frank. All right. Well, Thanks. Have, have yourself a wonderful uh, weekend. We'll be in touch, and uh, thank you for all of your time. You as well. Thank, uh, thank you so much. All right. Be all right. well. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. That is Andrew Bashago. I learned his name correctly before. Now... Tra- uh, um, uh, uh, Sherry, you sent me this wonderful picture. Huh. Which what, what? The one of Washington? Yes. Well, that has him and angels, but they're all little girls. No, so. the, but the, the 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 boy is outside the door. Oh, I didn't see that. Hold on, look, I got to show you. Wait a minute. I'm gonna send it to myself. I'm gonna put it up on screen. The, there oh. is a little boy outside the door. Okay, okay. Uh, of Washington. Yeah. Fuck it, Bashiago 2024. I believe him. I, I, I listen. Okay, I, I yeah. believe him. Now, he, he, now there's a couple of things here for me. Now, and uh, and Abe, you let me know. For and and Cherry too. If it was at one point benevolent, this program, something had gone awry by the time that he was uh, he was yeah. sitting around when you had scumbags like Bushes and Clintons there. Of course. Uh, yeah. Which also brings me to the biggest question. Uh, when he says that we need at least limited use of this chronovision technology, no. Who, no. who limits the use? I, I, I under, he, he makes good points about why it can't be widespread, but who? Sure, but bad actors are going to use the technology if they're not using it right now. If it was available, they're using it. There yeah. has to be a battle. Who's getting the technology? There has to be a behind this constant struggle for this. Right. Abe, you got to get your get your uh, your uh, volume up a little bit. Sorry, there has to be a battle for this knowledge, this this technology, right? There has to be this underground, constant freaking war. That that was going to be my question. The good guys, right? Yeah, yep. yeah. 
Like, like, does our future depend on the amount of hijinks that current bad actors are perpetrating right now? I, ha- I, you know? dude, I have so many questions. I have so many questions yeah. written down. And is down. Trump playing the same game? Like that goes along with all the whole Q narrative. If, like, if there were a war going on behind the scenes, that would be it. Here's the Courier and trying Ives. To change the past. Courier and Ives, right there. There so go. there's there uh, cousin Sherry just sent this to me right now that you have uh, Washington with his dream of liberty but look outside the door outside the door of his tent where is he boom but there's two guys there's another guy there's two the guys maybe they're just guys standing and guarding. it could be a boy right yeah it could be but it, you know who the hell knows let's say yeah. he has a tri-cornered hat on I just I love that idea this is eye socket fuzzy no, <laughs> can't see him from this angle. Boy, but boy, oh boy. Okay, um, I got to get into these super chats. We got to clear them out, and then we're gonna we're gonna take off a lot of this stuff. A lot of this stuff is gonna be oh good. Oh, it's not that not that heavy a load. Uh, Captain Castiron says I think they use uh, museums because it's convenient. A lot of old shit when you go back and forth, and then uh, he's at a stage in Morristown. That's what I'm talking about. That's why I was like, okay, well, why, why in community centers? Why on a stage? Why in museums? Why these public places? If this is so, and obviously very secretive and high, you know, world-changing technology, why isn't it going to be in secure little bunkers? All why in elevator shafts and random buildings? I thought that's why. I, I thought. It, it, it would have to have been a point of, okay, well, there's energy meridians all over the place, and we have to just have these jump rooms and these chronovisors uh, right there where it could have some kind of a source to power it. But he says, no, ley lines exist, but that's not why they had them. And it's perception. It's the perception of the person that's creating the portal that that's where it ends up. That's what I kind of got from him. Yeah. So yeah. maybe like some guy really knows the stage at the Morristown Theater. We can go there one day. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that would can, be crazy. Yeah, more timeless structure. Yeah. Oh, wow. My God. Okay, yeah. and now over on on uh, Pilled PC Tech Pro. Thank you. Witchy Poo started a cookie fight. Now Daisy. Uh, well, hold on. I have to. I have to pause this. Here we go. Uh, Put in hollow. Daisy chains. Uh, what else? Who else we have in there? Captain Castiron. Wow, mind-blowing show. Excellent guest. Matt, seventeen seventy-six. That's the that's the head honcho over there at Pilled. Great show tonight. Uh, fuck. P U C H says Bravo, Frank. Another great interview. Brilliant. Stickman, freed uh, freediver says, uh, did General George Washington ask whence came ye? And then uh, yeah, I, I, that I got got all this stuff to to talk about. Jay Brewski's. Homegoy says, "Okay, that last one was a cookie. What the hell is this?" Stick, stick man, freediver again says, "Can you teleport all the illegal refugees back to their home countries?" Uh, Homegoy again says, "Making up for all my free lurking." And now, witchy poo one two three SKG, fascinating topic. He says, "PC tech." So everybody's having a good time there. I got to release the scratching, and is the scratching button still where it's supposed to be? I don't know. I think oh there you go alright so that just happened now let's go over to rumble is anybody in rumble everybody's having a good time but there are no rumble rants that's easy and then over on rockfin 
Twisted Wizard says, I would love to hear Chris Ann Hall's thoughts on the history he partook in. This is an awesome show. Well, this is uh, this is the way I always wanted Friday and Saturday nights to be. Man. Cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Now, Sherry, all the stuff that you have left over, you have to send to me. All right. And I'll keep it in with all the notes I've been taking. And I'm sure that there's going to be follow-ups. I'm going to have to listen to this myself. There's stuff i got to look up. Strangely, a lot of coincidences with the places he mentioned in me. Mount Diablo, weird place. I've been there. Uh, Sandia Labs. I was there the same year he was. Very weird. Uh, Abe, on your end, too, I don't know if you're going to listen to this again. I'm going to tell, uh, quite frankly, writer John Carroll to listen to this from start to finish and just jot down follow-ups all along the way just so that we have dozens of questions that will last us another couple of episodes. But Well, well many times in the chat, I did ask if anyone was taking notes. And, you know, I think we should uh, quiz the Franklies at the end. We should just have a quiz at the end of all the Bashago appearances. For, for fun. Yeah. We got prizes. We should, we do. You got things to give away. I know. <laughs> the, it, it, uh, yeah. There might and even be a Washington thing in there. There, there could be. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, but I do think, I did get a feeling that there is no question you could not ask him that he would not have an answer for. So uh, I, I'm l really looking forward to future appearances because... It does seem like this ties into just about everything. Well, you know, what I really want to talk a little bit more about, like I said, Antarctica. That is a huge topic that he's got, he's got to know um, because it, 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 there's so many overlapping themes with the Antarctica question with ET technology, the uh, Nazis that are on the, uh, that are on the run in, in secret bases. Obviously, there's got to be people that jump around. I want to know if he's still remote, remote, uh, remote views. Um, I want to talk about the eight modalities of time jumping and remote viewing and all that. Uh, Out-of-body experiences by just spinning people. Yeah. Well, well not only that, he talked about, he didn't he poo-poo looking glass technology as we've heard it from people? I want to ask yeah. him about Bill Wood. Is that all nonsense or is it right. misunderstood? Uh, because Bill Wood was the, the he's done ma many um, interviews about looking glass technology, about how... Um, you know, because looking glass is something where you peer into the future, but you can only, you can test certain... Is that the one where they dropped a penny through it or something like no, that? No, 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 no. It, it's, it's where you can only, you can test probability of outcome based on what your actions and what your thoughts are going oh, to be. Okay. So, and Bill Wood was, uh, he said very prophetically that the those in in control now i guess the deep state the black hats whatever you want to call them they had seen an irreversible unavoidable change a shift where not necessarily the world was going to end but the power structures world was going to end and that they that that were lurching towards something that's unavoidable and it sounded like some sort of a Great awakening, right? And right. I, I want to be able to talk about that fixed and points that there are fixed points yeah. that you can see. Yeah, I, I want to. I, I, I want to talk about that. future forecasting. Yeah, you know. So th there's so much stuff to do, and um, I think we had a great time here tonight. Uh, uh, Sherry, before we leave, let everybody know uh, how they can find. I know that you have a uh, secondhand store. You have some great. You're going to start doing auctions. Right. Yeah, going online. It's um, 
whatnot. It's a it's an app and it's a website. And my handle is Curiosity Shop. And I'm going to be doing my first live auction next Thursday at 9:15. So if you follow me, if you find Curiosity Shop, um, whatnot, um, I can have some followers. But you do the, the, you. Uh, what I love about what you do with the store is not only not only do you you make a lot of things, um, but you are a really prolific finder of antiques yeah uh, cool stuff historical artifacts relics it's great great stuff i curate my curious collection a lot of the stuff in this room right you know cool stuff a lot of weird things well so yeah find me on whatnot curiosity shop Uh, abe anything you want to say as we end here uh, quite frankly, TV for all things quite frankly. I think if you go on the page, you'll see that PILD is updated. Figure out a way that the, it's going to send you notifications. That's the way to always get a notification for all the off-air content that is not necessarily posted on any platform that is not Foxhole. So if you want uh, some of that extra bonus stuff make sure you're getting notifications from there yeah and you know what tonight uh tonight is pretty much the the crux of quite frankly tv programming i don't know if anything's going on afterwards but tomorrow night tomorrow night sunday night we will have some good stuff that i'm going to pick for the the nine o'clock stream that usually goes well into the uh the early morning depending on what time zone you're in and i hope you all come by to to hang out with us i will see you all on monday evening 7 p.m the guest is jason burmis we're talking about loose change behind the scenes all these years later and uh, i'm i'm very happy to have had all of you here tonight thanks again sherry thank you Bye. thanks everybody thanks andrew bashago thanks aaron uh, moriarty for the the booking help and uh, abe you enjoy yourself over there wherever the hell you are bye abe bye bye <laughs> I'll catch you on the flip side. Quite frankly, is film before a live studio audience. And now our super chatter, starting with Captain Castiron. And then a whole bunch of love on Foxhole and... Um, and Twisted Wizard on Rockfin. Thank you guys and gals for your time. I can't, will not wait to see you all on Monday. Take care. 